a podcast for speech-language pathologists, audiologists, and the scientists who support them, a podcast where you'll come with questions and leave with more of them, a podcast by two people who love thinking and lively debate but hate beating around the bush and baseless claims. Welcome to episode four. Now, for the kickoff of our fourth episode, let's do some real quick reintroductions. And it's not just Ianessa and I this time. We actually have two other guests with us as well, and so you'll get to meet them. But first, I'm Meredith Harold. I'm one of the two co-hosts of this podcast. I'm also the owner of The Informed SLP, a website that helps clinicians know our field's research. I'm a former school-based SLP, private practice owner, and university faculty. So I've been on the clinical side, the academia and science side, and the business side of our field, actually each of them for about five years. And so I'm roughly 15 years into my career with a nice, broad, generalist perspective on it all. And I live in Kansas City. Hi, everybody. Nice to be back. I'm Ianessa Humbert. I'm the other co-host of this podcast. I've spent most of my career in the world of academia as faculty at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine, at the University of Florida, the University of Iowa, conducting research on swallowing. But over the last few years, I've become very interested in student and clinician education. I co-created the Swallowing Training and Education Portal with fellow SLP, Rinki Verandani Desai. Will? Hey, I'm Will Farnham. I'm a clinical SLP who's worked in various medical settings for the better part of a decade, including skilled nursing facilities, outpatient, and mobile endoscopy, and soon I'll be adding acute care to that list as well. Uh, If you know me, which you probably don't, it's because in my spare time I write SLP memes under the pseudonym Hard to Swallow. Summer? Hi, everyone. I'm Summer Lore. I'm a school-based SLP in California where I work in self-contained classrooms with students with moderate to severe disabilities, particularly autism and emergent communicators from first through eighth grades. We're fully virtual, so this year is like doing my clinical fellowship all over again. I also run a network of clandestine SLP Facebook groups, and I occasionally blog at slbeeps.com. All right, so... That's everyone. So a couple kind of fun facts. First of all, when Ianessa and I had decided that we would need two currently practicing clinicians to discuss this episode with us, it actually was Will and Summer who were our first two picks. And then when we asked them, they were more than willing to do it. And so that's kind of cool for us that we basically were able to quickly talk them into coming onto this podcast with us. And then the other kind of thing to know about all of us is we all met on the internet, which is kind of cool as well. Like some of us have met once or twice or, you know, max a few times at um, ASHA conventions and stuff like that. But for the most part, the way we know each other is through DMs and PMs and emailing, which I think is kind of cool because it didn't used to be that way that now, you know, all the people who you're, you know, leaning on and brainstorming with and everything a lot of times are people you met online. Oh, this is like SLP Tinder. It is. (laughs) We met, we found each other online. We chose each other online. Okay, so. I'm going to swipe myself right out of this conversation. (laughs) 
So what we'll be talking about today is clinicians' barriers to implementing evidence-based practice, why it is that an SLP may know the most evidence-aligned way to proceed with a client, but still either choose not to do it or not be able to do it, or because of barriers outside their control, they just cannot implement EBP, regardless of if they know what that might you know, entail or not. So let's start with talking about misconceptions about clinicians. Um, So for people who know me well, I always kind of like to first approach things regarding how people feel about a situation before we get into like the nitty gritty details of, you know, this won't work for this reason. This might be hard for this reason, because I think that's a really huge part about this is the effect of science lovers misconceptions about clinicians who don't know the evidence or don't use it or can't use it. So Will or Summer, would would either of you be interested in kind of commenting on this? Some of the ways you see people approach clinicians about using EBP that might create barriers in and of itself before the clinician has even, you know, considered whether or not they want to head down a certain path? Yes. So as someone who (laughs) runs a Facebook group, Um, a very active Facebook group that is secret for a reason. I think I can speak to this, which is there are a lot of barriers to asking a question and getting an answer on social media. And a big part of it is, despite this being a field where you're going to spend your first few years feeling like an idiot all the time, and that's normal. People really, really, really hate to look stupid online. So they will not ask questions in big groups unless they either don't know any better or don't care what other people think. And generally speaking, I find people will ask in one of the big SLP groups and then never ask anything ever again until they come to a small heavily moderated group where the rules are along the lines of it's okay to be wrong, but you can't be an asshole. So I think people, they may not look at it this way, but people would rather do mediocre therapy than subject themselves to the field's mean girls for very little benefit to them. Can I ask a question about that? I might be a mean girl. I'm not sure. It depends. My approach is that I'm far less concerned, and this this has good and bad in it, I'm far less concerned with a speech pathologist who posts something like, hey guys, first uh, head and neck cancer patient, or first trach, first infant, um, never touched one before, tips and tricks. To me, if you ask a question like that, I have no choice but to read what seems to be a flippant question with concern for the patient over you. That's my approach. Now, I definitely see very different questions that target the same thing, far more descriptive, far more specific, sharing what you think you know, this is what I understand, but this is the part I'm stuck on. Can somebody, I've read this, I've read that, but I'm still not getting, and it's sometimes it's not that these two individuals, if you take the same question and two people, 
are necessarily smarter or dumber than each other. It's sometimes when you read the question and you can't even see their face and you don't know anything about them, the question makes you feel alarmed for the patient. And so sometimes it comes off as a mean person. And I'm not that kind of person who says, step away from the patient. But I've seen those in like air liked near my phone, but never quite touch my phone. Like, yes, I want to like that because I worry about the patient. So I, I, I don't know. I think that when it comes to EBP and our concerns about the extent to which people will even ask questions, social media is not the only place to get information. I just think that it's turned into that. And now people just go there for everything. And sometimes we can't understand the full range of what they've actually done outside of social media to really educate themselves. And they might have. And I think you're touching on some things that kind of play to what I was thinking about with is that like so many things, there are extremes on a continuum when it comes to clinical knowledge and implementation of EBP. And when we have differences in communication styles, and this is something I know Meredith is, is really into in general, is that the vast majority of scientists are not great about communicating their knowledge to people who aren't scientists. And I think wrapped up in that is the assumption that because things weren't phrased the way you might phrase them if you were approaching someone that you've interacted with frequently that you know has this rigor, here's what I know, here's this thing I think I know, here's what I definitely don't know, can you help me with that thing? If you're not used to phrasing things that way, then the temptation on the receiving end is to interpret that as this person has done nothing else. And, you know, we we judge ourselves by our intentions and others by their actions. And just because we read that and think, boy, I can't imagine having this person go touch a patient that that they never worked with before, you know, it's possible that even though they said it poorly... Really, all they mean is, I haven't worked with this kind of patient before. And it really is tips and tricks, as opposed to, I don't know anything about, about the condition, about how to treat it. I, you know, And it could be anywhere on that continuum. It could be, literally, this is the first time I've heard of this diagnosis, so I'm, I'm reaching out. And it could be, I'm just feeling a little incompetent about going into the session tomorrow. Can you help me break that ice? But generally, all of us again, to varying degrees, but we are all frequently unclear in our language because we know what we're thinking. We find it cumbersome and maybe sometimes even like we're talking down to explain everything that we've already thought or, oh, these aren't details that people need. And, you know, I think that that's kind of reaching towards the the giving people the benefit of the doubt in the spectrum. And there are some people who definitely deserve the benefit of the doubt, and there are some people who definitely don't. But it's difficult to know where someone lies on that continuum without experience with them prior. Yeah, I just want to say that there's something you said, Will, which, of course, psychology has all the answers. It's called fundamental attribution error. It's basically where Given a particular situation, let's just take dishonesty or incompetence. Let's take incompetence. It sounds like that's what we're talking about here, right? If somebody does something and you don't know them, or even if you know them, it could be your spouse, it is a character flaw. If you do it, it was a, a just a moment where you had an excuse. Well, I didn't know what time I had to be here or, oh, this. There's an excuse. It's not a character flaw. And I do think that our field is going through some serious 
I'll do another psychology term, stereotype threat, where we feel that we know our stereotype is basically always to be ancillary, whether we're in a school or a hospital. If we're in a school, we're not the principal or the teacher. We have to explain ourselves. If we're in a hospital, we're not the nurses or the doctors. We have to explain ourselves. And we feel very much like outsiders and that we have to prove ourselves all the time. So what happens is when you're in the in-group, you don't want them to air your dirty laundry. So women don't like women crying in meetings. SLPs don't like SLP sounding incompetent online. It's like, oh God, you have to crush them. Take them to the bathroom and say, get yourself together, right? We can't have ourselves crying in, in bathrooms. But basically, we don't know anything about these other individuals. And I think that's perhaps where we are moving into this idea of what are, what's a massive barrier to EBP? We can talk about what our institution has. We can talk about money. We can talk about education. But our biggest barrier, in my opinion, is our own psychology of who we are as SLPs, what we'll ever get, and just belief systems around what we are required to do and what we're not required to do. Basically, like I've said before, we let everyone live rent-free in our head and they're trashing the place. And so we don't actually believe we're going to get it. So sometimes, or, or we don't believe that our other colleagues can actually really pull themselves together to do it. And you feel like you're the only one out there doing it. So it's like the hell. Summer? Well, and speaking of psychology, a thing that comes up a lot is the feeling of imposter syndrome. And I've written probably hundreds of reports for kids who are emergent communicators on the autism spectrum at this point. Every single time I have to write one, I am absolutely convinced that I don't know anything. And sometimes in those moments, I go online and say, how do I do this? And then someone will tell me and I'll be like, oh, that's exactly what I would do. I do know this. And I think because I'm in kind of a closed system and I put probably too much effort into making myself clear online, I don't get the, why are you asking this? How very dare you? But if I was in a bigger group where people didn't know me, I would sound wildly incompetent. But the other thing that's different about school-based SLPs, for those of us who only do speech and language, is we're much less likely to kill people by being incompetent. Yeah. Or in general. <laughs> yeah. I've had that discussion with people before, too, just like a quick aside about how different the interactions are between like school-based peds people and how it's a lot less likely to immediately get hot than conversations around things like dysphagia, where people are like, you are going to kill someone if you don't, you know, <laughs> figure this out or whatever. But I think the thing that concerns me the most is that, you know, we're never going to be able to make everybody feel comfortable in our, you know, peer coaching interactions online. There's always going to be dumpster fires. There's always going to be people with feelings hurt. There's always going to be people who don't get their questions answered or, you know, end up feeling, you know, dumb because of the way they asked a question. My biggest concern is just, I see a lot of people completely turned off from the concept of, evidence-based practice and knowing the research and thinking things through and critical thinking and turned off from a lot of like the leaders who support people in those types of things purely because they have either witnessed someone be made to feel bad that they didn't know something or didn't do something or because they themselves have been made to feel bad. Like that's the thing that I really want to make sure that our field avoids 
this concept of like EBP assholes, where it's like all those EBP people, they are assholes because they're mean to everyone about it. Well, and on top of that, the people who are willing to have a conversation tend to be the ones who the evidence is not on their side. (laughs) True. Oh my goodness. Strong and wrong. (laughs) They're willing to talk forever and usually really, really nicely. Mm -hmm. They're super friendly. They're very rarely aggressive to anyone. Sometimes they'll, you know, sea lion you to death, as you discussed in the first episode. Just be like, why? Well, really? Why? Why aren't you looking at tongue tie? Have you not looked at tongue tie? Have you considered that the tongue tie might have reattached itself? And that's why he's having language problems. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I've said before that sometimes there's a, a little bit of push, push and pull between the Dunning Krugerites and the imposter syndromes. You know, we're all. To varying degrees and depending on on the part of the field or the part of our life, you pulled in one of those directions or the other. And uh, some people very strongly in one or the other. And then what doesn't fit into either of those are the people who are confidently knowledgeable. And it is difficult to – when you are confident and knowledgeable, you communicate in a way that expresses both your confidence and your knowledge. And that is not how – someone who is confident about something they know nothing about or someone who is not sure about things, they communicate very differently from the people who know what's going on. And that disparity definitely creates attention because there becomes a, a kind of talking past one another. Almost within, within the first exchange or two, you start addressing the what, what you perceive to be the idea behind the question or the idea behind the response. And that goes back to what you were saying earlier, Yanessa, that we can't know what the other person is is thinking, but we're going we're gonna to ascribe it to them regardless. And very quickly, those conversations can, can degrade into addressing essentially a straw man <laughs> – both from the person, the initial questioner's side, and also the people responding. I'm responding because I perceive your lack of competence. And then that person responds back because they perceive your hostility. Even if the first two interactions were really just a different ways of approaching a clinical question. Well, there are exceptions. I think most of us start off in these interactions with at least att- attempting to temper the idea that everyone is grossly incompetent or terribly mean. And, uh, like if we, if we expected to get a mean response, then we wouldn't have asked the question in the first place. But if you're a little less confident, then something that questions your kind of personal button is going to seem aggressive. And so it's, where, wherever you are on that continuum is going to affect how, how the interaction goes. And I, I think that's definitely a big barrier to being able to engage with people who are confident and knowledgeable on their terms when you're coming to them with a question. Two things. One is regional differences can get overlooked, particularly across countries. I've noticed there's a There's a particular spirit of lively debate among Australian SLPs that in the U.S. looks a lot different. And people might not even necessarily know they're Australian because people don't pay attention. And also just East Coast versus Midwest. 
growing up, you know, just being identifying as very, very Midwestern. I talk to people from the East Coast and I'm surprised not infrequently just because it's such a different communication style. And then the other thing is if you've read the book Because Internet by Gretchen McCullough, the linguist, it's an amazing guide to generational differences in how people communicate on the internet. And one of the most important things is there's a certain subgeneration of people which I would include myself in, who are absolutely sure they can communicate everything there is about tone online in text with no problem. And then there's everybody else. And we run into a lot of problems with everybody else. So I, I want to say something and then we, we can sort of steer back to actual barriers to EBP. It sounds like we've started talking about um, the idea that people may or may not even really want to talk about barriers for fear that people know that they're not doing something. Uh, Summer perfectly brought me to something that I think is really important because I still maintain that the biggest barrier is people's willingness or their internal motivation to actually do it. And maybe you guys will prove me wrong when you talk about outside, maybe more environmental barriers, but... What's really important is that I have now worked in the Midwest as a postdoc at Wisconsin and then faculty at University of Iowa. And what I found really challenging was what I now believe to be obsession with self. And this is going to come off wrong. And then you guys can scream at me and I'll go back and you guys can please my tone. You can please my words. Say what you want. People's obsession with being like is such a massive barrier to getting shit done. I can't even stand it anymore. You walk into some place and you ask a very, very simple, Summer is dying laughing right now. (laughs) You ask a very simple question like, hey, I'm told that there's a form I need to fill out for so-and-so. And And you go and you ask the damn question you have because you don't want to waste your time or their time. And it's like, well, you know, that first time when I met you and you came and you asked for that form, I just didn't think you liked me. I'm like, what? I asked for a form. You don't think you like me? Well, I just, you know, you just, what? You're obsessed with yourself right now? Give me the goddamn form and stop obsessing over yourself. It is so, it, you think it's, you think it's a thing that if you obsess over people liking you, that the world would be a better place. No, shit won't get done because you'll always be thinking about yourself. People who obsess about whether they're being, people like them enough, can't stop thinking about themselves. It, it infiltrates everything. And I'm, I don't obsess about people liking me. I I like to figure it out as I get to know them and they'll figure me out. I don't think it's a thing you can know right away. How could you possibly like me in the first introduction anyway? And is that the superficial like that we want from people? Really, how could you possibly know me in the first 30 seconds I walked up? If you said I really liked you, I'd be like, you don't even know me. I wouldn't even accept it. I would not accept your like. Take your like back is what I would say, which makes you, then you don't like me. I'm like, okay, that you deserved. I deserved you to not like me because I told you to take your like back. Like I get that because you deserved it, right? But I just think that this, and it goes to our conversation online, which is when you're responding to somebody who's talking about probably only one pillar of EBP, which is science. We mostly ask a science question. We get back clinical expertise, which is fine. EBP is three, you know, but usually you'll say, hey, anyone do the effortful swallow thoughts, feelings, attitudes, and then someone will not give you science because they'll give you a clinical opinion. Fine. It's a pillar. But I still think the dynamic around that is I don't want anybody to think I'm dumb, but I want people to like me as well. 
And all of these, all of these mirrors we have to our faces, we can't even see past them, like change it to a window so we can see beyond this mirror that you're just reflecting yourself all the time. Okay, I'm done. That's why, that's why I said, I don't know which episode it was before, but our field is real big on following the nice. So not only do we want people to like us, and so we're really careful to, you know, present kindly and gently and, you know, emoji happy faces and good, good job, da, 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 you know, but also I find myself doing this too. And I see my peers do it all the time. They look around them and figure out who's the nicest and they follow that person. And so it's not... It's not, just, it's not just something that we're doing, you know, when it comes to people's reactions to ourself. A lot of it, it's something that we look for in other people. And it's definitely totally a Midwestern thing. Like I find it in my, I live in Kansas City, right smack dab in the middle of the country. And I find it all the time where like, I, <laughs> I have to work really hard to make sure that I am not too abrupt or to the point like Ianessa described is your, you know, like comfortable mode. Because if I am, then I find out later that like the lady two da- houses down doesn't really like me because she doesn't really think I'm all that nice and da 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 da. And it's like, oh, good God, I forgot to, <laughs> I forgot to like adjust our initial conversation to, you know. There might be a correlation between people who say like as a filler and want to be liked. I, I'm working on that theory. Like people who say they start a sentence with like, what? <laughs> All I said I was, hey, hey, what are your thoughts on so-and-so? Like, well, it's absolutely, a, it's absolutely a filler and it is a softener, which those of us who are obsessed with being liked do very deliberately use. But mm-hmm. then there's also the issue of the policing of tones used by young women, which is a whole other deep feminist discussion that we're not here for today. Right. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We could we could go on a f- full other path with like the concept of how people come across on the internet when it comes to being like kind and gentle and likable and da da da. But it interferes. It interferes with our ability to coach, teach, and learn from each other big time. I have twenty two hundred people in my Facebook group, and I can think of maybe three who are very clearly not very concerned with being liked. And I think that's fascinating because I really don't know many people like that Mm -hmm. um, as a Midwesterner. Yeah. Yeah. And one of your basic rules of like some of the small groups you run is like, be nice. Like up front, it's just like, be gentle, be nice so that we can all feel safe in these spaces. And honestly, some of the, some of the groups of people that I've seen you lead summer to me, they feel like the safest spaces. You know, they they really do. Why does why is safety necessary? Okay, help me understand this, guys. I just I'm struggling. <laughs> Here's why I'm struggling. Because my story is very simple. I knew nothing about swallowing when I graduated with my master's. Zero, absolutely nothing. I knew it was a thing. I had taken a whole elective on it, didn't learn anything. And then I decided to do my CFY in the school system. Holy crap, get me a PhD. Get me the hell out of there. So then I started a PhD and it ended up having to be something, it required that it was something in a medical area. So I knocked down some doors at the NIH and I said, hey, I need a lab to do stuff in. And they magically let me, paid for me to do it. And it happened to be a lab that studies voice and speech and swallowing and needed somebody to do the swallowing stuff. So I'm like, swallowing it is, I want to learn how to do science, give me knowledge. And let me tell you, I'd never even read a whole research article through and I'm at the NIH 
as a pre-doctoral research training award recipient. I had never written a whole paper before, uh, read a whole paper through. You best believe I learned out of my own will to be competent and be able to have a conversation at a journal club and to emulate these great scientists. I read so many papers trying to figure out how to read papers and listening to their interpretation. I wanted to do it. There's, and I couldn't say that to these people. I couldn't say, hey, I'm an imposter and I've never read a, pap- read a paper before. I just have to go in there and do it. Just do it. I don't go online and say, well, at the time there was no online really, but I don't go and say, hey, can you guys help me? This is 2003 and blah, 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 blah. You just have, half of the battle is doing it. And the other half is having some external information to help guide you as you move along that path. So I guess the idea of safety comes, can't happen if it was an easy thing to do. It's obviously not easy to do to be up there in your evidence-based practice knowledge. Otherwise, we wouldn't be talking about it in so many fields. It's not just speech pathology. It must, there must be barriers, right? And obviously, it is a bar of competence to not be at a certain level of EBP. So to me, the idea of safety has to, can't be completely the goal. I'm not saying, uh, what I'm suggesting is being wrong should hurt a a little, just enough for you to want to fix it, but not so much that you just leave and never try to learn again. So safety in error maybe is where I'm happy to go with. But the idea that safe, nice, to me, I think it inhibits learning because there's no fire under your ass. But maybe I just learn through, I like to throw myself into things, obviously, and figure it out as I go. I play by ear more than I play by by um, music, by reading music. Um, even, in, even when I'm performing on the piano, I just want to jump in there and figure it out. So it could be a personality thing. But talk to me about the safe thing. Do you think it's important for SLPs to feel safe for them to understand the literature? Yes. <laughs> Go ahead, Summer, <laughs> and then I'll say why. <laughs> Great about making us read a lot of articles and demonstrating understanding of them and applying it to clinical cases. That was excellent. But what I think you're addressing is a bigger issue in our field which is in some ways because of the lack of diversity, we are largely a field made up of upper middle-class white women who, generally speaking, do value feeling safe and comfortable over being tough. And I think when you've had to come up through something in a non-majority position, You value toughness and being able to roll with the punches a lot more, whereas a lot of, I know a lot of my classmates in grad school had come straight through, had literally never had a job before, still lived with their parents, their moms, you know, packed their lunch. I think the lack of diversity in the field really contributes to the homogenous niceness and the kind of timidity a lot of people bring. I think you're definitely right about that too. I think, yeah, the, I think the other piece too, the, the homogeneity, whether we're talking about, you know, racial or gender or whatever, I think there, there's a different kind of homogeneity, which is an environmental thing. And the fact is most people, especially people asking questions on clinical fora on the internet are, did not get thrown into a lab where they had to be at the same table 
with people with MDs and PhDs and board certifications, et cetera, you know, where they had to know what the discussion was going to be in the first place and then also be able to participate in it. Instead, they left school and increasingly a lot of them are the only person that they interact with more than once every couple of weeks who knows anything about anything related to our field. You know, they may not have, you know, they may have an occasional visit with their CF supervisor, but a lot of people don't even have that on site, you know, and they, they may or may not have colleagues. And so they're, they're coming at it not from a, boy, I really need to make sure that I know this as deeply as possible so that I can participate in table stakes. They're coming at it from a, holy crap, I have to be the person who knows this. There's this thing I've never encountered. What do I do? And those are two very different headspaces <laughs> for approaching anything with respect to evidence. Right, especially in schools where there's no such thing as a specialist. I'm relatively specialized in mild severe autism, but even at that, I come across kids with, you know, indigenous languages and lots and lots and lots of other conditions in addition to autism. So do you both, Will, and I'm not going to ask Meredith this because she has a business called the Informed SLP, so she better damn well be informed, right? <laughs> but Will and Summer, tell me, do you feel if there, let's say, let's just make this scale of one to 10 thing happen, right? Within your area, Will, what would you say you're, you're, you're more medical? Is that fair to say? That you were, okay. And then Summer, you're more in the education area. Okay, fine. So that will help people to know what you mean when you answer this question. A scale of one to 10, one being what's a swallow or what's a language, <laughs> to 10 being, oh my God, I know everything there is to know about this topic based on all the pillars. I know what the patients want, I know what the clinicians are doing, and I know what the science says. On a scale of 1 to 10, where would you guys put yourselves and why? I think coming out of school, I would have thought I was probably like a 6 or 7 when I was really more like a 2 or a 3. It took a couple of years of experience for me to – of me continuing to engage with the literature and with other professionals to realize I, where I genuinely was in that continuum. Now – Objectively, I'm probably more like a five. Yeah, I like. I think. I think I, I have enough of an understanding to to ethically practice <laughs> the things that I need to practice with, and I make an active effort to keep up with the updates. But I, I cannot tell you how many times I'll, I'll be like, "Oh, this is a great article that I just saw somebody link to," and I look, and the byline's from three years ago, and it's like, "How did I miss this?" <laughs> you know, <laughs> and it happens all the time. Yeah, everyone does that, even if it's your area. It happens to everybody. I'd put myself at probably a six. I've been, I've been very focused and I do read and I find at this point that I'm familiar with most of the things that come up. Although there are quite a few exciting new things to learn every year. You told me not to participate, but I'm going to participate anyway. I'm going to give you my <laughs> score <for> anyway. <laughs> so when I was working as a school-based SLP, keeping in mind that I had a PhD at the time, so I was a generalist, I had left the university, and then I went and took a school job, I would say that I consistently felt at about a four the entire time I was in the schools. And I was in the schools for probably five to six years. 
Now that I run the informed SLP, I would say I'm closer to a nine. But the reason it's be- is because it's my full-time job. All I do all day long is read research and read my staff's reviews of the research. And so it's literally all I do. And so I'm the exact same human today that I was six years ago, you know, when I was like in the middle of working my school job. And that also kind of like transitions into earlier, Ianessa, you said something about how you feel like people's own headspace is like the main thing that's getting in their way of kind of like taking on evidence-based practices and things like that. I actually feel like it's the opposite. I actually feel like that's a misconception that it's the individual's like motivation or flexibility or critical thinking skills or willingness or anything like that, I actually think the environment is a much bigger player because I don't work harder now than I did then. I don't care more about the evidence that I did then. It's just a complete difference in the barriers of like my environment and the like lifestyle that I'm leading with my everyday job. A thought I have frequently when I see these interactions that are starting to turn south is that the person who is being perceived as the aggressor, more or less, seems to be ascribing personal motives. And, and those personal motives are frequently lack of care, lack of diligence, or lack of motivation. And they're making those attributions probably because they believe that, the, that a choice that they made in response to a situation is probably the only ethical choice. They perceive that anything that could be a barrier to that is not a barrier, but an excuse. Sometimes they're right about that, but I would say, I talked about that spectrum of giving people the benefit of the doubt. Uh, I think I think people need, you know, we could all do to lean more heavily towards saying, if they could make that, if they felt they could make that choice, they probably would. Whereas we assume that they don't. So I... Here's the thing, and I don't know who, I don't know what you guys are dealing with, but let me just, I'm going to be very vague in the beginning, and then I'm going to get specific. The vague part is that I've given, God, over 100 talks to people who aren't even on social media. And I want you guys to understand, by the time you hit social media and you've scrolled through some of these, you've learned something. So by the time those individuals are asking questions, they are at least raising their hand and dip hand and demonstrating what the masses may or may not know, right? They tend to be more educated than the people who come to a talk and raise their hand and ask how the larynx is different from the pharynx and have been practicing swallowing for 20 motherfucking years. Now, I want you to understand I'm not talking about social media. Social media to me is the YouTube version of a star where you know what they're thinking. The people who are in, you know, their homes and reality TV shows up and you're like, oh, okay, that's that's what's going on. I cannot tell you how many times that happens. And the questions they ask are things where I go, oh, my God, how many people have you put on a peg tube because they turned 80? Because they turned, well, they were old and had a stroke, so I just figured he should have a peg. Are These are people who haven't eaten in five years because a speech pathologist who doesn't understand how a swallow works 
just never. And so, of course, what's the question? What's the question there for EBP? I'm not even talking about what's the most current evidence on the Iowa Oral Performance Instrument, which is basically a bulb you put between your tongue, an air-filled bulb, and you push on it to get pressures. I literally went, gave a talk this year, and they didn't know what the IOP was. And I kind of made a face and I had to fix it real quick and go, okay, so let me explain that. Never knew I even had to explain it. So when I talk about the range of people who are willing to work in a situation where they can't describe, and I'll say, because now I'm going to get more specific and I'll say, how do you all feel about there not being a consequence for being the person who makes decisions about people's airway, but not knowing anything about that there, that set, that airway? Usually people raise their hand, people raise their hand and say, I, I don't know. I just, I feel like I just, I didn't have to do it. Everyone, I'm doing the things I'm recommending diets. That's what I do. I recommend diets and nobody's died yet. That, that kind of thing. When you hear that, you have to, it's, there's, it's not, again, it's not about, can you cite this paper anymore? It's, do you even have enough basic knowledge to do this? And you can say that's, the first pill, that's the very first step of evidence-based practice, which is, do you even know the mechanism you're dealing with? If you can't d- differentiate voice from articulation, from language, like if you don't even know what the, the, the big nine are that we have to have to graduate, I'm not sure that we should even be going to the level of what's, you know, what's the tongue pressure, roll of the tongue on the pharyngeal so-and-so. So that, that's what I mean about that level of you you have to want to know that you at least know the mechanism, not not the stuff you guys are. Okay, now should I ask for an instrumental or not, or should I say I need this you know particular device for a student who needs AAC? And which device would be best among those? The fact that you know there's a device out there. I mean, they didn't know there was a device. <laughs> and I think I think that gets to kind of the heart. You know, we're talking if we. When I talk about actual barriers, you know, the fact is the principal barrier to implementation of EBP is understanding that EBP is a thing you should be implementing. What you just said to me reinforces this, that the people who are attempting to engage, whether it's online or in person, about these EBP sorts of things, they are people who, at a minimum, are aware that evidence is a thing that they should be attempting to engage with. But that doesn't mean that there aren't people below that. And it's almost like for those people, how can we even have that conversation? You know, like when we talk about the, the imposter syndromes versus the Dunning-Krugerites, like they're the people who are like, well, I'm going to do it. And, and sure, I, I may not know it, but, but how hard can it be? There has to be a, a minimum level of insight to be able to even engage in the first place. And I tend to operate under the assumption that if you're going to have a question like that, You've at least got that minimum barrier. Maybe you've just barely crossed that threshold, but you're above the threshold where you, at least in some ways, care about EBP. Now, maybe maybe I'm giving some people too much credit, but I think in general, I'm giving the people asking those sorts of questions that are on these forums or whatever, they are probably at least at that threshold. They may be not far above it, but that's that's kind of the, the first barrier is, is knowing, <laughs> that there is evidence to be had and that I should care about it. What would you guys say is a primary external barrier? Well, for me, it's um, the job of the school SLP is to provide access to the curriculum. Our only and entire job is to take the students we're given 
and make sure there are no barriers caused by their speech or language disorder to get the curriculum they're being taught. (laughs) Which means that, yes, I know the evidence for dosage for childhood apraxia of speech, but I'm unlikely to do five hours of individual treatment a week, not just because of my schedule, or really not at all because of my schedule, but because in order to access that child's education, they don't need to be able to speak clearly. Therefore, that's the job of a private practice therapist. Yeah, when when I was in the schools, I know I'm not supposed to be the primary one talking here because it's been several years, and I will be very upfront about the fact that if you are not actively engaged in clinical practice, it is really hard to clearly see the barriers. I can see major differences between me today when I'm not, I don't actually carry a caseload versus me, you know, five years ago when I had a full-time caseload. And I think that's really important to acknowledge that people who don't have caseloads can't possibly clearly see the barriers because you forget things too quickly. But for me, it also, there also was a like factor of like, how much bang for the buck am I going to get with this? You know what I mean? Like, I know that like, a whole lot more effort on language sample analysis and really digging in deep to this kid's language is going to make a huge difference. But I mean, damn, like I can only see the kid twice per week for 30 minutes. And like, I already have plenty to do twice per week for 30 minutes. So I do I really even care to dig that much deeper? You know what I mean? Like, it always it like it was a trade between time and return on investment of that time that almost always just wasn't quite strong enough where I knew I should be trying something, but I was like, eh, but how much out of it am I really going to get when it comes to service provision? Well, and for school SLPs, that's really codified into law in that we have to give them access to a free and appropriate public education, which is FAPE. Denial of FAPE is a big, big deal. One way you deny FAPE is by pulling them out of class too long. You want to say what FAPE is? Free and appropriate public education. So denial of FAPE is a huge deal. One way you deny FAPE is pulling them out uh, class for too much speech that doesn't give enough bang for the buck. The other thing we talk about a lot is LRE or least restrictive environment. Mm -hmm. If they're having too much speech or they have too many behavior aids or they have too much help, they're in an environment that's too restrictive. So that's also balancing that out. Because again, there are some great studies on things that really, really work for a lot of things, but they require so many hours a week that it had better be really central to that child's education. It absolutely cannot be R or a lisp. You know what I think is interesting is, and Will, you can tell me how you feel about this. I think we're having the opposite issue, which is we accessing the patient in the way that could benefit them is often harder to do. Like when I hear you say you can't pull the kids too much and you don't want to spend too much time with them. A lot of speech pathologists, especially like in acute care where it's touch and go, want to spend not necessarily a ton more time, but they want to spend the right kind of time as well. When I was at Hopkins in the hospital working there, I remember specifically thinking there are people who may not need me or may need me but I don't know because I don't even know if they have a swallowing problem because 
this person is never going to get a modified barium swallow study. So do I just hang out with this person because they need up at least three hours of rehab time because we're an outpatient rehab? No, we were inpatient rehab. And there's a rule that you have to have at least three hours of rehab. And I'm like, maybe you need me, maybe you don't. I just already know that Floro's booked and I'm not going <laughs> to get a chance to see what's going on in there. You know, you could, quote, work on something. But to me, the big ethical thing is treating a normal swallow. And so talk about a major evidence-based thing. I can't think of one study that says everything's fine, so treat it, right? <laughs> so, yeah, I think that would probably be my biggest guess for medical settings is just getting access to the imaging that you need to see what the problem even is. Yeah, that's that's definitely a problem, uh, not just from a swallowing perspective, you know, getting getting the appropriate time to do things like more in-depth aphasia assessments, for example, and those sorts of things is also an issue. And, and yeah, I think it really has to do more with the, you know, like, as engaged clinicians, we don't want to be spending more or less time with anybody necessarily. We want to be spending the right time with the right people. And what makes it difficult in the current environment is that there are institutional barriers that have to do with reimbursement, but not only with reimbursement, that make that less like, like it may be that that patient that needed three hours of therapy, like they could have benefited from having two hours of PT that day, but that PT is already booked to the gills. And so it's up to you to help make sure that the patient gets the amount of treatment they need to meet their reimbursement level, because Suddenly, and we say, yeah, we have an, we absolutely have an ethical, you know, requirement to treat them appropriately, and we don't want to be treating something normal that, as though it's disordered and those sorts of things. At the same time, like if they don't meet that, then suddenly their so suddenly their stay isn't paid for, and so you know, like, and I, you know, I, I don't have answers for this, but it's something I think about a lot. Like, wh which is the more ethical decision to reduce your treatment to someone such that they don't hit a threshold? and are therefore responsible financially for more of their stay, regardless of their financial situation, <laughs> or to just do something to do something. I'm sorry, I did air quotes there. Um, <laughs> that, that may or may not be effective. Or maladaptive. You could possibly yeah, be maladaptive. Absolutely. absolutely. Evidence would suggest that if you restrict somebody from experiencing something because they need you and they never needed you, they're now not getting those experiences. It's almost like taking a normal kid, completely normal kid from a classroom, has no problems, and you stick them in a white room because you want to take away experiences from them. It's the exact opposite of what they need. They need to stay where they are and keep experiencing the classroom. We take normal people possibly from their rooms and we don't let them eat. And they should have been eating this whole time. It's crazy. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and clinical variability, especially in, in medically compromised patients, is a barrier to implementing best practice because where's the study that tells you this set of comorbidities at this level of severity with this particular onset, you know, like sometimes that patient gets referred to you because they're an inpatient. But depending on, on the situation, there may be other reasons, like they may have gotten referred to you for other perfectly valid reasons that have to do with a very complex and complicated situation. And you, your job as a clinician becomes to know as much as you can about the details of that complexity. And you, you absolutely don't want to be treating something as disordered when it's normal, and that's going to do harm 
to do so. I, I think there tends to be a bias in approach from the academic community. They they tend to assume the ability to control a situation much more than reality is amenable to. And, what do you and, mean and, by the academic community? Who's the academic community who's in a hospital? Uh, the, the, sorry, the, the EBP assholes <laughs> that we referred to earlier, uh, which includes academicians. Oh, I see what you're saying. And so, okay. and I'm going to draw my, my mobile fees experience here. Like the fact is there can be things that you see in a swallow that, yeah, the, the data shows can be representative of a normal swallow in a given population, sure. But maybe – but the whole reason this person got referred to me in the first place is because they have X, Y, and Z severe comorbidities that place them at increased risk for things like development of pneumonia from any cause. And so what they're coming to, what they're coming to me for is to see, hey – is it possible that this person who is prone to getting sick could get sicker because of their swallow? And so my report's going to say, didn't look terrible, but there were X, Y, and Z which represent risk factors for this patient. Who? So so I hear where you're going with that. And I, I post those a lot where I say, hey, guys, stop pegging people for this thing. This is normal. And I do get a lot of people, but what if they have this? What if they have that? Then you have evidence to support your decision. As long as you have sound physiologic data and evidence, this particular issue in a different patient could be horrifying. In this patient, it's not, but the whole point is you know that the evidence shows if you have diabetes, you have whatever the thing is, you have to still know the research to know what patients under a certain circumstance, that same swallows could be very detrimental. The point is, it's very, the more you know the literature, the less you know anything in particular, you realize, wow, I actually need to consult it more. There is a strain of conversation. One of the one of the memes in the field right now, and the original memes, the thoughts threading through our conversations is maybe everybody's getting overtreated. And there's, yeah, a very real possibility of that. But I think because that's the meme, that's where a lot of these conversations tend to start from is from a position of if you make a change you need to be 100% sure that that change wasn't because of something that was actually normal. So the perception tends to be, if I come with a question, the response is, well, did you know that could be normal in X, Y, and Z? Uh, a thing we frequently hear is, I'm a chronic silent aspirator. Am I? Do I need to be on on nectar and puree? And Wait, that's that's not good. If you're, Are you normal if you're chronically silently aspirating? You know, and 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 it, it raises valid clinical questions. You know, like about things like medical complexity. Like if you can be a chronic silent aspirator without getting a chest infection because you're, you know, a healthy middle aged person, then um, that who's active, like good for you. You're right. But may I just suggest that the EBP assholes are there to swing the pendulum away from where we tend to live, which is, well, if it feels good, I feel uncomfortable. I'm uncomfortable with this. There's a point where someone's comfort is all the EBP they need, and their comfort is really based on the fact that they have no medical training, and that's not the patient's fault. They did not sign up for therapy with you when they don't have a problem because you're not comfortable with your training. So I think the EBP assholes play a role, which is, Let's just consider the possibility of this, take it or leave it. And I'd say people have the right to leave it as well. They can say, I will take that when I need it. Right now, I don't. Thank you for that. And this is where the rent-free living the head comes in, that what tends to happen is 
the EBP advocate chimes in, and then that's where the conversation ends because the person who asked the question doesn't feel heard. All they hear is, hey, this thing could be normal. How do you know that? How do you know what the person feels? Speaking from personal experience in the past. (laughs) So you have stopped because you didn't feel heard. Yeah, I've gotten over it now. I'm, I'm far less insecure than I used to be. But that, I mean, yeah, absolutely. Like, ask a question, get a response that says... You don't know anything. And, you know, then that conversation is done. And and I think I think I absolutely see the role of the EPP advocate. And I'm not saying they shouldn't be doing what they're doing. I'm saying the current climate to me seems to – the pendulum swings. Like so it starts over here with I'm not comfortable with this and it says who cares if you're comfortable. This could be normal X, Y, Z. It never swings back. Right, right. There's a there's a power dynamic between people who are perceived as experts and leaders, people who have PhDs in our field, people who are like specialists and really know what they're talking about, and the more like generalist SLP community who has to be responsible for a million different topics, so it's impossible to feel like an expert on anything always. I think our field does a really bad job of reinforcing a difference in like power or level between those people just via how we do things like interact at things like our conferences. And, you know, yeah, we talked about that. Yeah, yeah. And so like, it it definitely like people definitely will, you know, just immediately stop. Like somebody will say, but what about and if that person is perceived to be an expert, they just freeze. And they're like, okay, I guess the conversation's over now. Yeah, if I don't have an immediate response to that, or if uh, or a response to what I perceive the response to my response is going to be, uh, you know, like, right. Like how scary is it going to be when I say something else to this person and start to engage back and forth? Yeah. Something that really sticks in my mind is I have a friend whose dad is a psych professor and he said he could always pick out the SLP students in his intro class because their question was always, but what's the right answer that will be on the test? <laughs> oh, yes, no. Lord. Hallelujah. <laughs> Good God. Oh. You are so hitting on it, Summer. <laughs> Complete discomfort with any kind of gray area. Yeah. And I feel like um, you can survive grad school that way. You might not be the best student, but then you graduate and it's immediately all gray area. And then there are people for whom there doesn't seem to be a gray area. And I think a lot of SLPs just, I don't know why, This field seems to draw highly anxious people. But I think you talked about that, Summer. You were saying everything that I have another podcast called Down the Hatch about swallowing. And Alicia and I keep saying embrace the gray, embrace the gray. There's no black and white answers here. And it's exactly what you were saying. It's what you said before, perhaps, about the demographic. And in fact, Nicole Rogatz-Pulley and I wrote a paper about gender disparities in speech pathology and how some, even though this is a predominantly female field, often females tend not to get uh, certain positions, etc. But women are also then, you know, making that decision about who they think a leader is. And oftentimes women are the meanest to other women who have just sort of a natural power stance. They're not trying. And then they're a bitch Right. And so it goes into nobody wants to be a bitch. Apparently, I don't know what's wrong with it. Sometimes it serves me well. Well, not sometimes. Mostly it serves me well. But this whole idea that nobody wants to be a bitch because everybody wants to be liked goes completely away from the idea that if somebody says something and you didn't know and you're like, okay, I didn't know that. Um, I, you know, sucks to kind of be uninformed here. But can you tell me more? Because my goal is to learn 
And I, you know, I, I clearly have a fundamental difference in my approach to learning, which is by any means necessary, right? So I guess I'm the Malcolm X of learning here. I'm like, fuck everything. Just put the information in my brain. I don't care what you think about me. But if I get to learn something, don't I get to, because now you can't even say she didn't even know. I know now. I always know now. So I didn't know then, but I know now. And what else can I know? But I get that what what I'm learning, I maybe I'm, I'm I feel like I'm the main one learning here because you guys seem to understand a different psyche better than I, which is people's barrier to to learning can literally be their unwillingness to say, I don't know something. And that can go so far that they would be willing to be a little less competent in their practice for fear of asking and potentially not give the best patient care. So it goes back to my point about being nice is so self-centered that you actually only care about yourself or the perception of wanting to be liked. Well, there's there's that. And I think there's, for instance, my, my husband is an immigrant and he looks at things a lot differently and he's a lot more like Ianessa than I am. I'm an immigrant too. Oh, I'm, a parent, well, I'm a child of immigrants. So that's the only reason why I'm always in survival mode. I was wondering, yeah, no, because you sound like my husband. The thing is, no one can tell him who he is. He right. is aware microaggressions exist. He does not care. Yeah, you can't tell him who he is. There was a great episode of um, Invisibilia about old world racism versus new world racism. And the children of immigrants were talking about, you know, but this kid, he was really mean to me. He called me a name. And the parents are like, if someone didn't hit you over the head with a shovel and put you in a closet, it's a good day. Now exactly. do your homework. That's exactly how my parents are. <laughs> okay, so this, so I have a context for this now, um, and I think uh, I think there's a mindset that nobody gets to tell me who I am, whereas the Midwest nice mindset is the slightest criticism is going to define you. It's going to define threat. me, yes. and it says who I am as a person, which you see. In social media, in stuff like Black Lives Matter coming up, and you know, if someone is even gives you gives a lot of people even the gentlest, you know, maybe that wasn't very sensitive, and you shouldn't, you know, maybe you should consider why, maybe you shouldn't say X. It immediately becomes, I'm not racist, I'm a good person, and that's absolutely not what the conversation was about. But people take it as a slight on their value as a human being. But can I suggest, Summer, that everything you said is exactly what you set yourself up for? When, if you leave your home as an immigrant, you leave knowing you're going to get tried, people are going to try to dupe you, and you are an outsider. When you sign up to be an outsider, all you do is walk into that place like, at any moment, someone's going to try to trick me. Let me have my game on. Woohoo, I won that one. And when they try to trick you, it's not a surprise. And when you win, it's a, it's not like, why would they do that? But if you've only ever lived in a country or a place, and in our field, everybody looks like you, you have home field advantage all the time. So it baffles me that people don't feel more comfortable. This is what I don't understand, which is how are people feeling so out of place and easily colored or tainted by the person next to them when they have so much more in common with people in the room? And then the immigrants are coming in like, say some shit, I'm ready for the fight. Because you have the same sense of self. Like if you are in charge of yourself, people will try to fuck you up. <laughs> you know what I mean? 
Um, so I, I just assumed it would be in some senses. And in fact, I would argue our field isn't as tip top as it could be because there is the competition that's happening in speech programs, to your point, is really about the wrong thing. It's not about being an independent thinker and raising your hand and being wrong, like an engineer where you're problem solving based. It's about checking boxes and getting the right answers. And as a result, like you said, it persists elsewhere. And it's like, I got an A on so-and-so. I passed the practice with 100%. You shouldn't have been able to pass it that easy. A practice is too goddamn easy then. But then what do they say? Well, we don't want people to feel badly because they didn't do well on the test. Do you want them practicing on somebody's airway? No. Why don't we have better competition? Why do people have GPAs that are 4.2s and they're and they're and then they graduate and then all of that high level education doesn't translate into continued learning outside of it? They obviously had the drive or there's grade inflation in grad school to get these high GPAs where we only we had 300 people apply and 30 people got in. But then somehow there's a, a breakdown because we're not teaching self-motivated self-study learning style because they continue to cry if they don't get a perfect hundred on the test and then they go out and somehow the way they learn to learn doesn't exist in reality anymore. I, I really think that's it. I think that's often the kind of student we're accepting into graduate programs because when you're only accepting 10%, the measure has to be something and it, it becomes a 4.2 GPA and a very good GRE score. Mm-hmm. Which I bombed, by the way, but I crushed the analytical and nobody gave a shit because it wasn't even part of the thing. But maybe that's what we should all be thinking of. And I just want to say I'm feeling a vibe by that side of my screen. I don't know who's here and here. Will and Meredith, how are you guys feeling about this hyper crazy immigrant here who thinks nobody's trying hard enough apparently <laughs> so we're gonna bring it, i'll bring it back to psychology too you know the the phenomenon we're talking about is locus of control and internal versus external locus of control mm-hmm. and um you know i i think uh while it can have moral implications i think i think it's wrong to ascribe morality to a different locus of control than the one we possess uh that being said certain behaviors uh, certain outcomes are much more favorably associated with an internal locus of control versus an external locus of control. And we should be encouraging that. But how one arrives at that comes through a lot of different things. Maybe the way one arrives at that is by being the children of immigrants. Uh, Maybe, you know, for me, it took it took a lot of failure uh, that never occurred early in my life, (laughs) like failure as a as a young and not so young adult. You know, I, I, I went to grad school one and three quarters times uh, <laughs> before I before I was done because some of my privileges and resulted in me not developing habits that people who are less privileged have to develop at an earlier age. And then I got through grad school and didn't get done with it because it wasn't part of my worldview that I would have to work at something that mattered because I never had to before <laughs> and I didn't know how to do it. I learned, <laughs> but it, but it, but it took getting smacked way down for that to happen, and then even after that, you know, I, I had some other worldview shifts too that contributed. But so everyone's experience in that regard is going to be, you know, and ultimately, I think if you're going to become both a competent and a confident clinician, both you have to develop that sort of an approach. But how people get there 
The only way that you learn to develop an internal locus of control is to have genuinely adverse external experiences. <laughs> and You're probably right about that. And and but don't you also have to have the adverse experiences and have a particular response to it? Because don't some people maybe get even worse and have anxiety about it and oh, absolutely. feel like they have no control? You have to win sometimes. You can't always lose. Had some other things not been in not been the way they are for my life, I you know, I it's a it's a there but for the grace of God go I situation. Like the fact is, had had other certain things not been completely already working in my favor, I would be one of those millennials that everybody judges living in his parents' basement, drinking and playing video games because he can't find a job. You know, like the reason that I didn't end up like that is because of factors that have nothing to do with my innate qualities. But I didn't know that until I was there, or until after I was there, in fact, until I had the benefit of hindsight to say, you know what, these sort like these sorts of things absolutely work against me. And all I've got is I can learn to deal with what I'm presented with in a way that I accept it so I can overcome it, or I continue to fight it because I'm good enough, I don't need to change then the barrier is still there. I haven't overcome it. And it continues to lead me down a path that's going to take me nowhere but down. And, you know, having an anxiety is one of the things that can contribute to that, but it's not the only thing. We don't know what someone has or hasn't experienced when they come to us. And it may be that they become the sort of person who develops the the skill set that you're talking about, Ianessa. But maybe they don't. I think I think History and society are, are littered with people who become crushed by the weight of their not only their own experience, but their perception of the experience. That's not their fault, <laughs> but it, it happens, yeah. Well, and I think one thing that's worth considering is adversity versus trauma. And I don't know off the top of my head what the difference is, except that when you come through it, if you're successful, it's adversity. It's a really good point. Otherwise, it's trauma. And I also almost became that millennial living with my parents and playing video games all day. And in, instead, I met my husband who was like, hey, you know what? Instead of childcare, which does not pay a living wage, you could do this other thing that I heard about. And here I am. But it, it really could have been different. I love that. I love what you both are saying. And... What's interesting to me hearing you say that is there is no option. You either in in my world, I mean, we ate every day, but I don't know that that was always going to happen. There's no video games in a, what basement? Nobody owns anything. Like we don't, we can't get video games, and may and partly I'm Gen X as well, which is defy authority, right? So it was this whole '80s thing, where it's like fuck the world kind of thing. Um, but I find it, I find that that disposition interesting, which is even though in retrospect hearing, and and I have to say, I now analyze my psychology listening to everybody here, which is I have the same emotional response to hearing somebody say why they won't read a paper, why they won't do self-study that people probably have when they hear me say, why wouldn't you do that? 
I don't understand why you wouldn't. Because I'm just like, so you're telling you have control. See, this is the locus of control thing. You have control over this, but you're just not going to do it. This is all I'm thinking. So you could learn it if you read a paper, but you just won't. To me, to me, that's all I keep hearing. I keep hearing, so you just won't do it? Because you know you can be in charge of anything in your life. But it's so interesting to hear this other perspective, which is, no, some it's possible for someone to actually think that they don't have the control over it. And I'm struggling because it's not natural for me. I mean, look, there's an, I'm not going to be in the WNBA. I'm 5'2 and I'm 44. Not going to happen. But there are other things. I can't speak to medical settings, obviously, but there's also in schools this unreal culture of martyrdom that like there are all these things that we have to do and we have to suffer so much you know if there's anything you don't want to do or you're like I'm sorry I'm done at three they're like but don't you care about the kids if you're not working 10 to 12 hours a day and if you're charging for things instead of giving them away for free don't you care about the kids Anything you say about your job as a teacher or a school-based SLP that's negative has to be prefaced with, I love my kids, but uh-huh. it's a rule it's like people parents, have on a t-shirt. Parents do the same thing. I love my kids, but they're driving me crazy. <laughs> yes. And I would argue there's a little bit of a culture of martyrdom among parents also. I agree with you. Um, and I think the the focus on how we're suffering so much and everything is too hard. And when I try to talk to teachers about just a few times an hour, press this button on the AAC device. That's all. That's literally all I need you to do. It's just another damn thing to them. Yeah. It Mm. sends them over the edge. Just absolutely over the edge. I understand. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, speaking of barriers, the level of cooperation is low. And anything that I try to bring for classroom carryover, unless I have a really good relationship with that teacher, is this is another stupid educational fad. And in two years, they're going to tell us to do the opposite. Mm, Why would I waste my time following the SLP we have right now? When two years ago, we had a different SLP. And another year, we're going to have another different SLP. Mm -hmm. And also... I tell them to hit that button in front of the kid. The kid does not appear to be paying attention. And if there's, if they try and there's no payoff within two weeks, nothing will happen. And that device is going back in the closet. Very interesting. That's a huge external one to think about. And I think I I spend a, a lot of time kind of shifting my brain between two modes. And that is the way things are kind of like acknowledging that the barriers are there and, you know, coming from a barrier space perspective versus the way things we wish they would be. And I sometimes have to find my, like in order to problem solve things, I almost have to fully go into both modes. I have to allow my brain to go into that mode of my fellow SLPs who are like, the teacher won't freaking do this. You know what I mean? Like, it's not going to happen. I'm not going to get the time. I'm not going to get the collaboration. I'm not going to get the this. And so it's just not freaking realistic to do in clinical practice. And then it completely shift my brain the other direction to, but we could make it happen. There's ways in which we could find a path, you know, to make it happen. And I think that it's really important to constantly, or at least for me, to constantly push my brain both directions between the way I wish the world were and the way it actually is in order to have like a clear picture of, 
you know, what adjustments could and couldn't be made in order to try to, you know, inch things forward. Because those are two totally different mindsets. And I think, ENS, I think you operate from almost more from a mindset of how things should be, you know, like you push hard to go in the direction of the way things should be. And I think other people tend to allow for too much of, but this is the way it is. It's too hard. There's too many barriers, you know? Yeah. I'm extremely goal-oriented. And so my drive is always what is down the road that I can target as opposed to do I want more of the same? And I almost never want that. Summer, I had a point, but Summer, I think you wanted to vibe off of something she already said. I did. And I think this is where the culture of niceness really, really ties in because I know for absolutely certain, I mean, possibly until you give me a really good study that says otherwise, that the teachers will not do shit unless they like me. Yes, 100%. In a school need to like you. They have a lot on their plates and absolutely everything is a personal favor. Yes, there are things that are clearly in their job description that they're supposed to be doing, but they don't see it that way. They see it as a favor they're doing because they like you. Mm-hmm. I think it's definitely the same on the medical side. Not so much with the MDs, though there can be that. But if you're in a facility where you're working directly with nursing, whether that's a skilled nursing facility or or a hospital setting or whatever, that implementation of the thing depends so much on your relationship with them rather than the evidence. And that's not something that's not how it works in, in academia. Uh, we're in a, in a Well, no, that's not true. That's not true at all. Academia is exactly what you described. Well, let me tell you why. I'm so glad you said this. That is because the one thing that will always happen in academia is if there's a theory that is tied to somebody who's prominent where there is a company that makes a lot of money from it, you best believe that a lot of people have questions about whether or not that uh, person should be a... a People won't go to the microphone if there's a particular person who's powerful presenting with the obvious question, "Um, do you think maybe you needed a control group? Like something really, really basic. And everybody will say it. They'll be texting each other. But nobody will go and say it because people know that person's going to be on the grant committee. They're going to be reviewing your papers. They decide who the program committee is going to be next year. So self-preservation exists in science in very different ways. I just think scientists try to act like it's better or higher or somehow more prestigious. It's like white collar crime, blue collar crime. And somehow academics think that they're doing the white collar crimes because they had to use science to get money. Whereas like somebody else, you know, just did something else in industry. And I think it's all bullshit. I think it's the same thing. Same problem, different game. That's all it is. But um, I just wanted to say something about something you said, Will, which is, the nurses, et cetera. And I think another big problem with EBP and getting it done is not just getting people to do the right thing, is getting them to stop doing the wrong thing. That's even harder because human nature in general is like, this is the way we always walk to school. Why do we have to walk over here? And after you've done it for a while, you're like, remember we used to walk that way? I forgot about that. But it's the transition is so hard when you have time and money and all these things that are limited uh, to if you're learning something new and it's going to somehow help you, like I'm now trained in this and I get to put in my CV, that's fine. Then you might dump the old thing. But if you try to take something away and de-implement something 
and they don't give them something else to do. It's like taking a, a toy from a kid and not replacing it with something more interesting. They're going to wail and say, but why? I want that old, old toy, even if they even if it's poison. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like you can't eat that, hun. <laughs> so I think a big problem with EBP is I have patients in front of me. I need to know something to do. I need something to do. And the thing that I can do that may, may, may be working, might not be working, is what I'm going to do for now. Well, and one of the big fights we had on um, Twitter some years ago, but it was stop using mirrors uh, with kids for our tick because that's not EBP. The alternatives tended to be, here's this thing you can do that takes five hours a week. And it was stop doing that. I don't think people want to be told to stop doing something unless there's an alternative that not only that they can do, but there's strong evidence that it works better because people doing stuff there is zero control trial evidence for have been doing it for years because they think it works. And it could just be the placebo effect, but you better have a damn good study before they are going to believe that over evidence they've seen with their own eyes over the course of their entire. But that is still evidence clinical. This is, and well, I'm, I see you there, but this is what I think clinicians can be empowered with, which is if you're collecting clinical evidence for your data and your patients, and you can demonstrate that this is what I'm seeing, then you have the power to say, Thank you for sharing that group data in a very controlled protocol where every patient had to have the same things. In my world where I have diverse patients with all kinds of issues, I find I see this kind of change that is objective and reliable. If clinicians can do that, they'd be less frustrated by scientists coming down and saying, you didn't do it the way I did it, even though we have completely different goals. Your goals are very different from our goals. We hate variability. You love it. You, we really hate to not have group data. You're never going to get group data. So we just need to be able to realize that in this world, this evidence sometimes is sufficient, but sometimes clinicians don't have the strength based on what Meredith was saying about these hierarchies about who can say what, or the savvy to outthink and outspeak a scientist who will come to them and say, shut them down with the EBP. But again, if you have a sound physiologic rationale for what you're doing, there's not going to be a study for every patient in front of you. And that's to your advantage, in my opinion, as a clinician. I think this all ties into with some some of the other things we've been saying that, you know, if you're presented with a thing that says, don't do this, and your options for what to do instead are also limited, you know, if you're someone whose identity is tied up in you know, a, a lot of people get into this field, not because they're really into the science, but because they want to help people. And that's part of who they are. And if suddenly you're told that thing you're doing you might, might not help, might, might hurt, then that become what, what should have been a clinical or a scientific conversation then becomes an existential conversation. And so what you're saying, you're saying, I'm, I'm, I don't want to help people. You're saying I, I hurt people. Yeah. I wake up every day and I show up at this time and I did, I have student loans. That's such a great point, Will, which is... Even if you don't get defensive about it, you still like they're externally defensive. You're, you're going to have internal defensive barriers to that. And that can cause us to throw up things like, well, this has been working for me for so many years. And maybe it has. Or maybe that's what you're telling yourself 
Because you know, for various reasons, you may not be able to implement, you know, like these other barriers, and we've only touched on some of them, but you know, those institutional barriers about getting family buy-in, caregiver buy-in, about financial buy-in from being able to implement, you know, how often you're seeing a kid or a patient, all of those things, none of us want to be in that real world situation. We would all prefer the ideal. We, we, the utopia is always the dream, but just because we can't be there, we tend to throw up these things that say, well, clearly, clearly I'm, I'm still, I'm still okay. <laughs> you know, I'm doing this thing that, that works well. And even though it's not the best, it may be, you know, it, it is helping. So the other thing I wanted to bring up in terms of institutional barriers is that there are certain things we know about AAC. One of them is that you don't have to start with low tech and then move to high tech, right? So I have a job right now where if I need a high tech device for a child, I ask for one and I get it. It's amazing. However, there are school-based SLPs who cannot act on the evidence that some kids can go to straight to high tech. They would need to spend dozens of hours writing grants that have to be filled out in exactly the right way or else they get turned down. Sometimes it's hard to trial devices, especially now with COVID, the device libraries might be a little harder to get to. And getting the device to the child and having to test it remotely is a huge problem. So there are things that we know, but we wind up using printed laminated picture symbols because unless we're really sure this kid can handle the high-tech device and they will communicate with it, it's not worth it necessarily mm -hmm. to the SLP. Yeah. And a lot of SLPs are in that situation. Those very same situations don't just happen with kids. I once had a, a, an aphasic patient that I... Uh, ended up getting a device for it. But the fact is he wound up with a device that is better than nothing, but was not the right device for him because I couldn't get sales reps from the other companies on the phone. <laughs> and so was, he ended up getting like my, my three required tests for Medicare Medi were, were two different apps on my iPad. And then the, the, the loaner I got from the one company, because that's, that's what I could get access to despite my best efforts. I actually feel like SLP's jobs are one of the biggest factors. Like the more conversations I've had with people around EBP, the more feedback I get from our members of the Informed SLP website with people that are like, oh, I can implement all this versus people that are like, our field's research is not usable, which we get that all the time. We cover only the clinically usable stuff. And we definitely get people who are like, I can't do any of this shit at my job, you know? Definitely individual factors are at play for sure, but I swear people's jobs play such a huge role because even within my own staff, when we have conversations about how we can present the research to clinicians and feedback from people who are reading our presentations about the research and everything, consistently I hear the same thing from my staff where it's like, this one job I had, I could have done this. This other job I had, I could not have done this. And interestingly enough, and this could be a fluke, who knows, but interestingly enough, I see this more on the medical side than on the pediatric side of our website. I know, and Summer's like, really? I thought that too. I, 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 I thought that it would be the opposite, but we get much more feedback about job-related environmental like setting issues being the barrier 
for med SLPs than we get with school-based SLPs. And I think it's because honestly, like summer, like even though we've got all of our workplace barriers too, we do kind of operate within our own little bubble, you know, like you can kind of affect things within your own little bubble. But you also, you also have uh, the Department of Education that regulates education. There's no Department of Medical that reg- regulates all hospitals or SNFs or home health care or outpatients or private practices. The medical thing is a wild, wild west, just like insurances, right? Um, it's You could pay by, po- by a pay in your pocket. You can have some kind of Medicare. We're talking about low tech to high tech. And I was going to say, same thing for swallowing, at least. Sometimes the best thing you can do is let the just step away and let the patient eat food. But people want to get e-stim and IOP and attach a device to them when they just need to experience food. But you can't bill for that. You can't bill for saying, you don't need me. Go eat and come back in a short while. But their productivity demands. Right. So a lot of school based SLPs might be saying, how do I get less kids? I have so many kids in my caseload. And a lot of SLPs in certain snips are like, I need to fill my day. So you have a swallowing problem. You have a swallowing problem. Everybody has a swallowing problem. (laughs) I think, you know, in addition to that, there's the other piece things like especially in skilled nursing, but it's elsewhere, too. There is such a a, um, risk management perspective that is handed down uh, usually by management but that gets internalized which then you know like sure maybe what they need to do is experience food and i I think the billing question like there there are people that will bill for that no problem whether they should or not but those same people may be terrified of what happens if i'm trying to advance this patient too quickly and the the sorts of immediate harm of the, the odds of someone suddenly becoming cyanotic in front of you uh, versus maybe they're a little dehydrated for a while or something like that. Those tend to play. I was going to say earlier that I think some of this, the, the whole I could do this at one job, but but not another thing plays a little bit into the locus of control aspect, too, because it's definitely true that at this job, like there are some jobs where the environments are very stifling. I've also found, and my my experience is not as long as some, but that there are also environments that begin as stifling, that you then have the opportunity over a course of time to modify that. While the EBP utopia may be the goal that you feel you're never going to approach, that doesn't mean that there aren't necessarily small incremental changes that you can make one day at a time. And so, for example, one job that I was at for a number of years, I never, I never was able to implement the Fraser Water Protocols facility-wide, but I was able to get everybody who mattered on board where I said, this is a patient for whom you can do free water as long as you brush their teeth. And I could, I could systematically put that intervention in place for the patients for whom it mattered the most. Whereas the first time I tried to approach that with somebody, they said, nope, they got to be thin or they got to be nectar. That was the answer. And if I'd accepted that as the answer and said, well, I'm not going to change this, then that would have been the culture there. Instead, I fostered those relationships and, and it took years <laughs> to implement that evidence. And it wasn't fully implemented. It wasn't a facility-wide protocol before I left, but it was improved. Everything you're saying is exactly what I what this 
everything comes down to when we have these podcasts from down the hatch to this one, which is, is the biggest barrier, the fact that we do too many things and are trained very poorly and everything. I mean, are we even generalists? I don't even think we're generalists. When I, when I hear about someone going to med school and having four years, I would say they're a general generalist. I, I'll give them that. They still can't practice. You're not going to be pulling babies out or doing brain surgery, but they're at least, I want to be in Survivor with someone who's got a med degree over somebody who's got a business degree because they know something about the human body far beyond the rest of us, right? But when it comes to us, what we have to study is so vast from when, I mean, I hear you saying things about language and Arctic and I'm trying to find stuff in my head to make, make it make sense. And, you know, we're over here talking about, you know, nectar and pharynxes and larynxes. And it's, I'm not saying you've never heard of those things, but it's not in, immediately necessarily in everybody's wheelhouse in this call. And we all have the same degree, but we never had to specialize. And I think this comes down to the same thing everybody's saying, which is, we are eventually, as a field, going to need some kind of major educational overhaul or something because right now the money is good. You can get a job. It, it, people can get into programs. No one's graduating and not working like, you know, art history majors or something. I don't know. But when and if something ever happens and really the survival of the fittest within an institution is the person to talk practice at the top of their license and they don't need as many SLPs, that's when that competence difference is really probably going to matter more. And I'm hoping that we don't get in a situation where that's the case before we fix it on our end. Well, there's one thing that I think is interesting is it feels like for medical, a number of the, the you know, really soul crushing quality of life, ethical things are coming kind of from within the field. And as a school-based SLP, the it really feels like the this person is destroying this child's quality of life issues are coming from, from other fields that we tend to have a lot of head-to-head battles with. And what an that's interesting perspective. An interesting difference to me. Because, I mean, no, a lot of school SLPs don't know how to do mod severe. And sometimes I get goals that are obviously written for a gen ed kid that have nothing to do with my kids. And I change those goals as soon as they get into my program. But that's different from the, you know, people who are there every day who are insisting on, we are going to work on this child being compliant and we're not going to teach them how to say no to things, which isn't an issue in my particular workplace. But I find that a lot of the times I'm the first person to say, we're going to work with your child on refusing doing things that they don't want to do often. And to me, that's a major ethical blind spot that a lot of, not necessarily SLPs, but a lot of people who work with kids on the spectrum have. You can face those same challenges in a medical situation too. You know, I, I faced pushback from administration and nursing and things when I would implement, I, I would include very functional things that most patients who can speak ask for uh, or, or, or like to express. Uh, and uh, they'd be like, why are you putting that on? It's like, because that's something they should be able to say. Um, and you shouldn't be able to tell them they can't say that. Uh, yeah, it, it, it can happen. Yeah. So there's 
so many barriers we could discuss. Like we could turn, you know, this into an entire podcast that just goes on and on and on, you know, episode after episode. We've mentioned implementation science before in our podcast, but what it is is basically the study of information that's collected in a lab and, you know, practices that are identified as effective with, you know, certain patient populations make their way into practice. So basically the study of how EBPs actually make their way into practice and whether whether or not they end up getting, you know, picked up and used and everything. And one thing that I found really interesting several years ago that I'll refer you all to who are actually interested in digging deep into barriers systematically is the Consolidated Framework for Implementation Research. And so if you go to cfirguide.org, and we'll insert this into the show notes as well. It's one of the most popular frameworks that's basically a list of barriers, a list of barrier after barrier after barrier that is experienced across both education and health and medical fields and allied health fields. Internal things related to clinicians, environmental things related to the practice, and they even have like inner and outer setting differentiators, you know? So like in a school, it would be things like what's actually happening in the environments that you spend your day to day, but then also what's happening at the administrative office, what's happening in the community around you, what's happening in all these other settings that affect whether or not you can do things. I discovered these kind of implementations frameworks that give you these like lists of barriers to consider after practicing as a clinician for several years. And it almost felt like a weight being lifted because I could see on paper that every single other field experiences these exact same things, even funny little things that would just make me laugh. Like, um, there's, I don't recall exactly how it's labeled in the specific framework, but how well something is packaged and marketing marketed and how shiny something is. Like, so like a reading intervention, whether or not they have a really pretty website versus one that has a really shitty website, you know, and that's going to affect whether or not the teachers pick this one or this one. And so if anyone's interested in digging in deeper, especially people in our field who care very much about this and want to have continued conversations around it, I would highly encourage looking at some of those things because it will give you a reality check of all the barriers that you perhaps either have not considered or perhaps don't consider often enough. So we'll link all of that stuff out. But maybe two things to wrap up. First of all, are there any barriers that you all wanted to discuss that you feel like we haven't or things that you feel like people in our field, whether it's clinicians or scientists, need to hear that you haven't had a chance to say yet? I think I was thinking about before we started was for school-based SLPs, just with our crazy schedules and the need for something immediate, sometimes we get wrapped up in the activity versus the therapy implementation, which is, of course, why Teachers Pay Teachers is so popular and People love how you can do our tick cards with leprechauns on them or with snowflakes on them. And that ties into the other issue that I think goes throughout our field, which I'm going to call toxic femininity, which is everything needs to be cute. It needs to be nice. It needs to be polished. And I think a few weeks ago, Even the least cutesy of us got completely tied up in Bitmoji classrooms, which are which are basically dollhouses, little 
digital dollhouses that you put your lesson plans in. The kids can click on things. Mm -hmm. And people were spending hours and hours and hours making these. And then they'd be like, but why are we making these? And people would say, I don't know, but they're so cute. I'm going to use them. I like cuteness, but I think when we don't know what the right answer is, it's kind of our last refuge and our way to feel effective and like we're doing something. We're faking it till we make it, except the part that we're faking is the cute, polished, ultra feminine, stepped out of a bandbox sorority girl part of it. Like it looks pretty. It looks pretty. So I have to be doing it right because look at how beautiful it looks. Right. I do. I think you make an amazing point somewhere with this idea that people whoever is selling any therapy or device has to be aware that they're selling them to white females predominantly in our field. And that that then impacts that more white females come to the field because it seems like it's just a marketed for them, right? And then others who don't quite see themselves in the marketing or the messaging tend to go, oh, that's not for me. I don't belong there. And it might not be direct, it's subtle, but it seems to work. And to the extent that it's toxic or not, we can have a conversation of, I think there are certainly places where it's 100% toxic and other places where it probably so makes this, is the fuel that something runs on. I just have to believe that when I would see my kids see a short woman with a very high voice when they were three and four and they'd run to her versus her husband who was six foot tall with a deep voice and big feet, they run away. They didn't do anything wrong. They literally ran in the house and they were just drawn to someone who seemed at their level. I suspect there are areas where being female really is a benefit for helping certain patients. But I don't think that the conversation has happened yet to figure out how it could even be a barrier or not to EBP in ways that we've talked about that are so indirect. And we talked in the beginning about what would we even call this podcast? And if I had to call it something, I'd talk, I'd call it like hurdles to heuristics or something like that. Heuristics is basically your ability to do self-study, right? You're just teaching people to learn for themselves. And hurdles, there's multiple. It's like this whole idea that there, when you said barrier after barrier after barrier, I thought about hurdle after hurdle and how they have to keep going. Just because you hit one doesn't mean there's another, another, another. But I think that EBP could be sort of packaged in that way. There are so many hurdles to us doing self-study, which is what it is when you graduate. It's all self-study world. There's no test from anybody. It's just you have to have what it takes to do it. And from the toxic femininity all the way to there's a nurse that you have to get to like you all the way to everything that you've been studying and reading about that made you a nine now out of 10 versus, you know, a three or four when you started. Every single thing is a barrier. And I guess what we're encouraging people to do is I like to say to people, declare your biases, declare your hurdles, right? If you can declare your biases at the outset when you're going to talk to somebody and check yourself and what's my implicit bias, what am I going in with? Okay, let's rethink it, whether that's helpful here. Declare your hurdles. A lot of people have not actually written them out and said, time, access, 
blah, blah, blah. Which is the first one I can blow off my list? Which is the second one I can blow off my list? You know what's really people respond to on social media? Hey guys, I've made a decision that I'm going to read X number of papers a month. These are the online free places that I know I can get stuff. Is there anything else that we can add? And a lot of people are like, I want to help. I want to help this person to learn more. And then they read it. To me, that's a great way to move forward. And that's only one example. And people shouldn't feel ashamed of their hurdles, you know, like it has nothing to do with you as a person. It has everything to do with what you've experienced, where you are and everything. And getting real about those hurdles, I think, too, makes it getting real about those barriers makes it a lot easier to deal with them, especially when you see that other people have the same ones. And you're like, okay, Will, was there anything that you wanted to make sure to say that you haven't had a chance to? Uh, No, nothing. I think we've we've had a pretty thorough discussion. I mean, as thorough as... All right. These discussions could go on for for days, months, weeks, and years if we wanted to let them. <laughs> My title for the episode would be Nobody Thinks They Can Do Shit. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you guys so much for joining us. Yeah, this discussion is better because you joined than if Meredith and I thought that we could think of all the possible barriers. There's no way I knew that this conversation would go into such a deep psychological profiling. Like, I really feel like Enneagrams happened, all kinds of things happened. (laughs) That's okay, because I think what we've realized is it's difficult to do. I think EBP is akin to people who are like, hey, I have some physical goals. I want to drink less or I want to work out more. I want to eat less crap. You really have to get in your head and say, what are the barriers to me making these goals? Now I have something to say there. Uh, and and the fact is how everybody approaches that is different. You earlier said you're really goal oriented. Like if I want to eat less, I'm going to eat less. I'm going to set. And the fact is that is something that's near and dear to my heart and something I continue to struggle with. And it's something that like ultimate, like it is less of a struggle for me now, but what it took was deep psychological and theological intervention rather than just a meal plan <laughs> before I could get remotely to a place where it was even something I thought could be manageable rather than just something I just had to live with. There's been follow-up from that that applies to my professional life as well. But I had to I had to tackle those things. Yeah. Which are not things for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's not they're not they're not things that somebody else can tell you, yeah, what to do or how you should do it or anything like that. I, I would say that from my personal perspective, the one thing that I want everybody to realize and just the conversations that I've had with folks is that I feel I genuinely feel that. Increased collaboration between scientists and clinicians is going to be one of the major factors that allows us to push forward, both with having evidence-based practices that are easily, or not easily, it's never going to be easy, but that are but that we're able to implement in clinical practice in the first place, where clinicians could actually pick them up and use them right away. And also so that that clinicians, you know, are able to have more, you know, back and forth communication with scientists. And two things that I feel like are under-recognized in general by both parties is I think that it's important that our field scientists recognize that they don't know what it's like to be a clinician. Even if you were for a period of time, or even if like part of your university job is supervising students in the university clinic, like none of that is the same to it being your full-time job year after year after year. And I think that if our field scientists constantly remind themselves of that, I don't know what it's like to be a clinician. I do not know what it's like to be a clinician, and I will not be able to guess at the barriers I'm going to have to converse about the barriers with clinicians who are practicing full-time, I think that would make a huge difference. And then on the clinical side, I also think that it's important that they continue to remind themselves 
there's things out there that are that exist that would work better for me than the things that I'm doing. And just not to internalize it as something to make them feel bad about their clinical practice, but just that constant reminder that there is availability for growth that would allow you to be a more effective clinician. And that in order to continue to grow year after year after year, you will have to go seek those things out because they're not just going to magically happen by yourself, like in your clinical practice, that the learning is real and that there's a um, shocking number of things that you don't know. And the only way you can figure it out is if you continue to try to kind of tackle it over time. So I think that's great. And I just want to add that everybody should be aware that the evidence that gets the most attention is the science and that clinicians can provide evidence to that can inform scientists. We are not the holders of knowledge. Clinicians have a well, I have conducted so many studies because a clinician said, hey, how do you think this works? I'm like, I don't know, but my lab's right here and you're right here. Let's do it together. We've published together. It's happened over and over again. And the, the onus is on the scientists to take those questions and not go, I don't know what they're talking about. They clearly don't know anything. Don't take that. That's a, probably, it's just like you said, they have questions that are so much more relevant to what they're doing than I could ever think of. So let's take that question and study it together. So that to me is the first way to really, really merge the two in a way that people will respect the knowledge that comes out, but it'll also be a clinically relevant paper. So like you said, Meredith, you need those papers for what you do. You can't, I mean, it's great to have a study on rats, but it's not going to help the school system right now. Well, thank you all for agreeing to do this. This was super helpful. And I think that both clinicians and scientists and people in leadership positions who listen to this will get a lot out of it. And continue to, yeah, submit any questions that you have at uh, evidenceandargument.com, where you can kind of figure out how to connect with us across social media platforms, including um, our Twitter handle, um, Facebook group, and email as well. And we'll continue to learn from each other and have more conversations around this topic. And by the time you go to that website, we will have a title by then. Thank you.